First readings from Genesis 15, and Abraham receives a quite unexpected promise. And he's Abram at this stage, A-B-R-A-M. Uh, so I won't be mispronouncing it, we'll call him Abram. So after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign God, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know if I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gigashites, and Jebusites. And the second reading from Hebrews uh, is really a fulfilment of that promise. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have showed him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you, are ho what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that, 
by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, grant us all joy and peace in believing, but grant us also courage and faith and patience and endurance. Show us not just any hope, but the hope that will save us, the hope that will stop us from drifting, a hope, an anchor uh, that comes through Jesus Christ and in the power of your Spirit. We pray this now in the power of your Spirit. Speak to us. Dear Father, for Christ's sake, amen. So my primary text today is Hebrews 6 verse 19, and it goes like this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's a beauty, isn't it? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. I'm told in my reading this week that an anchor was a common metaphor in the Mediterranean world, as you can imagine, a boat on the sea in a storm. You'll need a functioning anchor in order to be firm and secure. And yet at the same time, the metaphor of an anchor is only used in this part In the Bible, this is the only reference to anchor as a metaphor in the Bible, right here in Hebrews. And so this is a pretty special verse. And this anchor is not just an anchor for one's new boat moored on the harbour, but rather this is an anchor for your soul. What could be better? Now, the metaphor is not explained here in the text, as metaphor shouldn't be explained in text, although there is context to help us to understand it. I think a good metaphor doesn't need explaining. Rather, it evokes a picture in our minds, and clearly, the picture this is meant to evoke in our mind is one of stability. It's one of confidence. You see those words, firm and secure. This, of course, is the gift of an anchor to a boat. Put negatively, this is about not drifting away from Christ, which is the context of the book of Hebrews. That's what happens with boats that don't have anchors. A boat without an anchor is is ridiculous. Boats lose control when they don't have an anchor and they dash against the rocks. You can see the confidence that we're talking about in the previous verse. Look at verse 18 if you kept your Bible open. Hebrews 6, verse 18, God did this, made a promise and an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, I, I, I want to be firm and secure in my faith. I want that. I want the stability and the confidence. I want to stay a follower of Jesus until my dying breath. Amen. I want that. 
I don't want to dip in and dip out when the suffering comes or the pressure is placed on, on, on me, when it suits self, because dipping in and out is about suiting self. It's about self as God. And you might say it's understandable given the suffering, but in the end, it's self as God. But the concept of a, or the metaphor of an anchor goes much deeper, if you'll pardon the pun. Anchors cannot be seen from the boat it anchors. When an anchor is doing what an anchor is supposed to be doing, it's hidden. Some boats drift, some boats stay secure, and the difference is an unseen thing, an anchor. And more, anchors are small in comparison to the size of the boat. When you wind up the anchor from the chain and you pop it in the boat, you tuck it away, you barely notice it. You don't think it's there. You don't think you need it until you need it. And then it becomes, of course, vital. Anchors are placed on a boat. You are that boat. A boat is put into constantly changing seas. That's what seas are. Those choppy seas are your life. Those choppy seas become choppier whenever there's a storm. Those storms are your troubles. And there's a context, of course, in the letter of Hebrews. We'll come to that in a moment. But the purpose of the anchor is that it provides stability. But, metaphor continues, not perfect stability, right? The boat will still feel wobbly on the seas. You might still feel queasy on the boat, but it won't drift away. That's the point. And more, the right anchor simply holds your boat in place on the open seas. It doesn't drag you down, as many people think Christianity does, drag you down, nor does it let you fly free to do what you want, which is what people want Christianity to be saying to their lives. It is rather the perfect stability to a boat on the seas. And so you'll have to trust the anchor at that point, not the boat. Now, I want this anchor, and you do too, I bet. Do you have it? What is it? And how do you get it? That's what tonight is all about. And yet, the crazy thing about this anchor in Hebrews, and Bishop Tom Wright points this out, he points out that this anchor doesn't go down and down and down into the mud of the seabed, which is what all anchors do. Rather, this anchor goes up and up through the heavens. Verse 19, it, the anchor, the hope, it enters the inner sanctuary, what's he talking about, behind the curtain, what's that, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Now, what on earth is he talking about? We'll explain it in just a moment's time. So we're in a series in the book of Hebrews, taking us through Trinity term, and it's not easy, as we've been saying all along, two steps of relevance Remember my Qantas chief marketing officer? You make it two steps and I check out. Well, that's what Qantas does, by the way. The lines are short. The seats are big. The food is good. That's how you market Qantas. But I, I'm here with the Bible open, saying to you that we've got to discover what the order of Melchizedek is. Blow me down. You've got to do some work. It's meat, not milk. 
Solid food, not mush, as we learned last week, but it is nourishment for the journey. The context of the whole book of Hebrews, and you know this if you've been coming week by week, but now I want to use a boat analogy. The recipients of the letter are about to go through a storm. They're under pressure from the authorities. The authorities want them to nod to the might of Rome and give up the weakness of Christ. They want them to turn up to a temple. Heck, you don't even have to mean it. Just, you know, make the sacrifice, and they don't care if you, if you don't mean it. They just want you to turn up. So just turn up. Say the emperor as a god, and, and Caesar is lord. But that, of course, means that God is not God, and Jesus is not lord. So what will they do? Persecution, insults, imprisonment, and confiscation of property are all on the cards. Indeed, in chapter 12, he says, at this point, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but that's next. That's next. So what will they do? One answer is to go back to something more comfortable, to Judaism, a known quantity, which probably explains all the references to the old covenant. And that keeps going for a number of weeks from, from this week on. It has been already in the series. Another thing to do is to just drift away, which is what we would do. Just drift away and to think that you can come and go when the suffering or persecution increases and subsides. You come and go as the persecution increases and subsides. But as we learned last week, to come and go reveals something about you, about what you understand about the nature of the relationship. You can't come and go any more than you can come and go in a marriage. Remember this? We talked about this last week. You say, I'm married. Uh, I love my wife, but um, when it's hard, I just walk away and I go and be with someone else for a little while. Uh, and that, when it stops being hard, I come back to my wife. He said, no, no, that's impossible. You can't do that. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says, it is not inevitable that you will drift away. You don't have to. I love this from William L. Lane's commentary. <laughs> Somebody said to me this morning, what did you like about that quote? I love the hope in it. It's not necessary. It isn't necessary for the people of faith to collapse under the pressures to which they are exposed. True then, true now. And these verses outline why they didn't have to be to collapse then and why we don't have to collapse now. Our text today is Hebrews 6, 13 to 20, the context of which is 9 to 12, 9 to 12, we've been tough on you for a reason, so you can get through the season. But, verse 11, you've got this. You've got this. Verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy or sluggish, but rather to imitate those who through faith and patience, are these lost virtues? Who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And we know that the first person he's referring to here is Abraham because of verse 13. Abraham is the one to imitate. He is an example of one who through faith and patience inherits what has been promised. But you've got to go back to those chapters to read how hard it was. So question for tonight. What does Abraham know that I need to know today? What is Abraham and others, by the way, because in chapter 11, he'll talk about a great cloud of witnesses who 
follow Abraham's example of faith in what is unseen? What do they get that I don't get? What's, you know, what's in the mix for them that's not in the mix for me that I need to have in the mix for me? Well, two things if you follow in your outlined in your uh, handouts. Abraham believed the greatest being possible, verses 13 through 18, and he held on to the strongest anchor possible in verses 19 through 20. He did that, and we've got an even greater reason for doing so. So let me break those two points apart. Believing the greatest being possible. The writer argues that the reason Abraham survived a tough season, and when I say a tough season, I think, I say, I mean, 25 years. The reason he survived there is because God not only promised him blessing, but he swore an oath to, and Abraham believed. The promise, I guess, is enough, but bowing to probably a human need, he says, let's, let's put a covenant there as well, let's swear an oath as well. And you can read about that swear, oath swearing in chapter 20, 22 of Genesis. But it's more than that. The oath and the promise come from the greatest being possible. And I say this with a nod to St. Anselm and the ontological argument. Look at verse 13. Now follow with me. The greatest being possible is important three words, and I want you to see why in a moment. Follow with me, verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, that's chapter 12 of Genesis, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, dash, 25 years, Abraham received what was promised. Now this theme he'll develop in chapter 11 with dozens of others, a great cloud of witnesses. Now what's going on here? Well, among other things, it's a statement that they're about God. There is no being greater than the greatest being possible. God is the greatest being possible, and so there's no being greater. No higher power, higher than the highest power. And so God doesn't have to fight with other gods, small g, as they imagined back then in the pagan world. And he doesn't have to prove himself to human beings either, as he does in the current world. Prove yourself to me, God. Show, you know, dance, monkey, dance, right? Dance, God, dance. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to appeal higher, as though there is a higher. There's no higher being than this, the greatest being possible. Now, this is in contrast to you and me. <laughs> I'm, we, are not, we, are, we are not the greatest being possible. So in verse 16, people swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Now, this happens, of course, when a, parl- a cabinet member is sworn into to cabinet by the governor general or when someone stands up in a court, they say, I'll have a Bible because they're saying there's something about the Bible that represents God. What you're doing is you're saying, if I do not keep my promise, then this higher one can judge me. This higher one can keep me accountable. May this higher one make my name mud if I do not do what I say, and it puts an end of all arguments. You'll do it. You say you'll do it. You swear an oath to it. You'll do it if you're a person of integrity. But what if you are the greatest being possible? What if there is no higher power? And the answer 
in Genesis is that God swears by himself. Now, this happened to Abraham, and I've got to tell you the story very briefly. Abraham was promised a child, and not just because he didn't have one and wanted one. There's plenty of that. It's common enough. No, it's because God had promised a child to him because through that child there'd be many descendants, and through those descendants God would redeem the world. And so he chose a wandering sheikh, intense, from what is now modern-day Iraq. And he said, go to the land, I'll show you. The man was called Abram, which means father. God renamed him Abraham, which means father of many. That is more descendants than the stars of the sky, but it's all a joke. It's a joke to him. It's a joke to Sarah. The guy's 75 years old. His wife's infertile. By the way, there's a lot of suffering in the story of Abraham, something Philip Yancey pointed out in his book on disappointment. There's a lot of suffering and patience in this story. In Genesis 12, God makes the promise. In Genesis 15, read to us, God confirms the promise with a covenant in which three animals are divided into half, and in the ancient Near Eastern world, both parties would walk through the pieces, but in this case, as a flaming torch, only God himself walks through the pieces. Only God is making a covenant here in this moment, knowing that Abraham and the people of God will not keep it. In Genesis 16, God watches Abraham force his hand by sleeping with Hagar. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's really horrible. In Genesis 21, God keeps his promise. Isaac is born, which means he laughs, not he scoffs. After 25 years of patience and faith. But there's more. After Isaac is born, matching patience and suffering is fear and trembling. In Genesis 22, God tests Abraham's faith in his promise by saying, sacrifice your son, your only son. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, wrote a book on this, trying to understand it, called Fear and Trembling. What do you do with that story? But God never intended that Abraham would kill his son, but he wanted to say, am I really the anchor? Do you really trust me? In chapter 11, and we'll get to this, do you really trust that God can raise the dead? Abraham figured as such, but God never intended it. As you know, God stayed Abraham's hand, and in a passage that can surely be leaned forward into the death of Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, His only Son, whom He loves, comes this word of God to Abraham, I swear by myself, there it is. There it is. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand on the seashore. The very thing said in verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews chapter 6, because there's no one greater. He's already made the promise, and he can't lie, but he makes a covenant and then an oath by himself, and since there's no being greater than himself and God cannot lie, he is surely going to keep it. Now, what about us? What about you and me? Well, the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that there is a home. There's a future for you. It's a glorious one. 
in chapter 11 and 12 who call it a heavenly home, a Mount Zion not connected to the land of Israel. Even if they take your life, you still win. Even if they take your life, you still win. Verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear, not just a promise but an oath, very clear to the heirs of what was promised, first to the recipients of the letter of Hebrews and then to us, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, a promise and an oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, that, that, uh, that line alone will fry your noodle, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So, no giving up. No giving up. Amen? No backing down. Be greatly encouraged. As we sang a moment ago, thank you, Joel, for the choice of songs. God of the rock, his purpose unchanging. It's impossible for God to lie. He's made a promise and an oath, and he kept it all the way to sending Jesus Christ to live the life I should have lived, to die the death I deserve, to rise again as the hope of the world, and to ascend as an anchor of hope to the Father's side. And this means that if you have a choice between death or God, I say choose God every day and twice on Sundays. Amen? Hard, but right. Two separate side thoughts about this. One, Abraham lived in an age in which people believed in many gods. It's called paganism. And you've got to read um, Stephen Fry's book, Mythos, to see what a dog's breakfast the pagan world was of power and control. The thought of one creator God over everything is unheard of, a ground of all being, one source of all that is, the greatest being possible, was thought to be impossible. And so back then in Abraham's world, you have competing gods. Now you were likely to choose a god that fit your tribe, but even then you were still taking a gamble, your god might lose in a fight to another god. It's a dog's breakfast. And of course it resulted in power struggles with the neighbouring tribe. My God is bigger than your God. Of course, the remarkable gift of Christianity is that we believe in a God who presents himself in weakness as Christ dies on a cross. The gift of God to us via Abraham is monotheism, one God who is above them all so that those who know God can relax, they can rest. He won't lose. People talk about being on the right side of history. He is the right side of history. He is the right side of history. He will keep his promises since no one can keep him from keeping his promise. Because there are only two reasons a person breaks a promise. I promise to, be, to meet you for dinner at six o'clock tomorrow night. Two reasons. One, you lie. You never intended to be there at six o'clock. You just lied. The second reason is circumstance. That is, someone with more power stops you from getting there. You know, you're driving along, you plan to be there at six, and slam, someone slams into you. You come in and say, I'm so sorry, I'm an hour late. There was a higher power in the form of a car that ran into me. Can God give you the inheritance he promises you? And the answer is yes, he can, because he cannot lie, and no one can stop him. So be greatly encouraged. 
As a sidebar on this greatest being possible idea, I think as our society moves further away from God and from the Christian message and gospel, that is the certainty and security of one God above it all and all the sort of um, centeredness around that, as that goes, I do wonder if we will return to a form of paganism in the form of mere power struggle, not with gods but with politicians and not with spiritual power but with political power. And with it, there'll only be enmity and conflict, tribalism, cultural wars, coercion, control. Personally, I would prefer hashtag thoughts and prayers. It's less dangerous than the alternative. Abraham believed the greatest being possible. He also held onto the strongest anchor possible. Since God cannot lie, you have hope. He made a promise and he'll, he'll keep it. And this hope is an anchor for your soul, not from within, but rather from God, not from within, although applied within. God is the object of your hope. Jesus Christ, the object of your hope, and he is secure. But we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. But this is no ordinary anchor. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there it is again. You might remember this slide, the order of Melchizedek. We're like, two weeks ago, what is that? I didn't explain it two weeks ago, and I won't explain it tonight. You know, is it a house in Harry Potter or a spell? An ancient club? Robert Forsyth will be taking us through chapter 7, which is an extended treatment of the priesthood of Melchizedek from, from Genesis next week. Suffice to say that in context, this is about the forever priesthood of Jesus, not a high priest who dies. They are a dime a dozen but rather a high priest, Jesus, who lives through resurrection. He, through resurrection and ascension, has entered the inner sanctuary and behind the curtain, the inner sanctuary, you and I couldn't enter because of our sin, behind the curtain, which we couldn't get behind because God is a holy God. Here, the writer is not referring to the temple in Jerusalem. That's what those old high priests did that are a dime a dozen. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, they entered the inner sanctuary, they went behind the curtain, but the writer of Hebrews will go on to argue that this one, this Jesus Christ, God's only son, our forerunner, he has entered into heaven ahead of us, taking with him our hope and a chain attached to it as an anchor. And if you hold on to him in your rickety boat on the wobbly seas, if you hold on to him and not on to yourself, you can be assured that you will receive what is promised. And so, no more being sluggish. Hold the anchor, hold the image of the anchor in your heart. Hide it there for the hard day to come, and it's coming. The anchor is indeed our reason for confidence. 
And this means that your confidence is not in you. This is the Bible, not Disney. You don't believe in you. You believe in God. You don't believe in your dreams. You believe in God's kingdom. You don't look within. It's all wobbly there. Rather, you look outwards towards Jesus. You don't have confidence in confidence alone. Sorry, Julie Andrews. You have an object of your confidence. His name is Jesus, and he is secure. But he is hidden. All of this, none of it seeable to your family and friends. None of it seeable to you. It's by faith. We'll come to that in chapter 11. And it seems small to your family, your friends. It is as hidden as an anchor is hidden. And no one cares about it when they don't need it. But this hope is the only thing that stops you from drifting. C.S. Lewis once said, do not let your happiness depend, that's the key word there, depend on something you may lose. Or in the words of the psalmist, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. This is what Abraham knew that I need to know. He believed the greatest being possible. He held the greatest anchor possible. He did not trust in himself. But it took time. 25 years. You're the boat. The storms will come. It's wobbly. There's pressure to conform. The sea will feel unstable. But you have hope. An anchor for your souls that is unseen. This is what the ancients were commended for. So as the writer will go on to say in Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, because nothing else remains. Let me pray. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it and reign supreme there, Jesus Christ, Lord of all. Conquer every rebel power. You are the God over and above it all. This is not the wrestle of pagan gods or political powers. And so we rest in you in changing times in rough seas, in pressure to conform. Our knees may feel wobbly, but Father, we won't fall. Not, not today, not tomorrow, not any day. Because of the promise, the certainty of the promise that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.